chapter 2. Just a few more weeks in this book, and then we're off to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, which is going to be a wild ride looking at that frat party of a church in Corinth. They were crazy. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we stand on the shoulders of the history of Christians who have defended the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Council of Chalcedon, the various ecumenical meetings of the church throughout history have set fences about the faith that we now hold. And at the center of our faith is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the center of our lives, at the center of our problems, in the midst of our hardships, no matter how bleak, how bad it may seem, no matter how bad the news may come, in the midst of it all is the good news of a God who has come to us, lived for us, died for us, resurrected on our behalf. This day, may you work deeply in the hearts of your saints, draw us close and bolster our faith, cause us to stand strong in our faith, refine our faith, define our faith, move through our faith in this world, Give to those who are worn out and weary today a word of encouragement. To those, Lord, this morning who are on the precipice, they feel like they've been pushed to the edge. Would you strengthen their legs and strengthen their hands and strengthen their hearts as the gospel is heralded to them? Father, for those who are living in unrepentant sin, lingering in those spaces of compromise and justification, excuses. Lord, may they hear the good news that there's mercy for them, forgiveness. And Father, for those of us this morning who find ourselves in an abundance, your presence is thick and felt and the bills are actually being paid and we have a roof over our heads and so much to be thankful for, may you strengthen our resolve to only rely on you more deeply in the midst of our abundance and affluence. Bless this time in your word, because it is your word that does the work. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been going through the book of Habakkuk, I've come to call this prophet, do you want the bad news or the really bad news first prophet of the Old Testament? But that's really not true. Because today we reach the center of this little prophecy and in the midst of all of this bad news that the prophet Habakkuk was bringing to the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the bad news that things were going to get really bad, that deliverance wasn't going to come because God was disciplining them for their sinful and rebellious behavior that they had not repented of, the bad news that the Babylonian nation was going to come in and bust their chops, the bad news that Things were going to get more difficult, and they were going to be ousted from their cultural place of prominence. The bad news that they were going to become marginalized and persecuted, and they were going to suffer greatly. In the midst of all of that bad news, right in the center of all of those words that were overwhelming to the people of God, is the great news 
of the gospel. We read it there for our corporate reading in verse 4. The righteous shall live by his faith. This good news that God makes wrong people right, that God brings justice to the world, not by our works, but by our belief, is so central to the Bible, and this particular verse so clearly articulates the whole of the message that three books in the New Testament pick up this verse and quote it. The author of Hebrews, some mystery man, or woman, some argue. Priscilla possibly could have been the author of the book of Hebrews, but you've never heard that before. Encourages a community who are under great persecution, saying, don't become cowards. Don't give up. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. And in Hebrews chapter 10, this verse is quoted, saying, the just, those who are righteous, will continue to believe They will be the ones that survive. They will be the ones that live. Paul, in the book of Galatians, which we went through here a number of months ago, is arguing that our works, our efforts, our labors to gain the favor of God and be accepted by God do no good for us. But instead, we all know, because Paul quotes Habakkuk, this verse in Galatians chapter 3 saying, the just, those who are right, those whose wrongs have been cleansed, they will live, they will be given, and they will be made righteous by their faith. Paul, again, in the book of Romans, which in my consideration is one of the, if not the most important document that, ha- document that has ever been produced by mankind, builds his whole argument frames out his whole understanding of the gospel based on this verse. In chapter 1 of Romans, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to those who believe, for the just shall live by faith. And so too for us, standing on the history of God's people from the times of Habakkuk to the New Testament times, through the history of the church, the creeds that we read here in the midst of our worship time, to today, no matter how bleak it is in your life this morning, no matter how bad it may seem, no matter how overwhelming the words may be coming at you from all sorts of different directions, at the epicenter of your life is the good news that you are justified, you are accepted, you are loved, you are eternally secure, you will never be lost. There is a sure and good and glorious end to your life because of the resurrection of Jesus. And it just seems that the more black the backdrop of the curtain is in our life, the more bright our belief becomes in that good news. And it's all about faith. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what we're going to explore is this concept of faith. And we'll use our text as a a guide to discuss this this morning. Let's start by talking about the questions of faith. Two questions that I want to ask about faith and belief. Number one, what is faith? Faith, have you ever given this any thought? Considered what in the world actually is faith? I know for myself, I wasn't a churchman before I became a pastor. I came literally out of the world of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and had never read the Bible. And there were all of these Christian words that Christians just seemed to attach so much meaning to. And I was like, 
I don't know what hallelujah means. I don't know what glory to God means. I have no clue what sanctification is. And faith, live by faith, man. What what are you talking about? (laughs) Faith, as I've meditated on this for almost 20 years now, faith is the total surrender to something not yet seen, felt, or experienced as true. Faith is the total surrender to something that is not yet seen or experienced as true in that moment. The Bible in Hebrews defines faith in this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To help us understand faith, I want to give you two things that faith is not. Number one, faith is not some mystical intangible, ethereal thing that only super spiritual people have and exercise. Hear this clearly. Faith is something that functions in your life and my life every single day, and every human being exercises faith in some measure. Allow me to explain. This morning, you exercised faith to come to this gathering. How so? You had not seen yet that those on the roads next to you would obey the traffic laws. You believed by faith that as you got in your car and traveled to this gathering space, the person coming at you in the other side of the road would obey the traffic laws. You, You couldn't know that until the car had passed you. It was an act of faith. You trusted in another human being and the traffic laws of the land before it was seen, experienced, or felt, and that is what actually got you out of bed into your car to drive here. When you came in this morning, you looked at the chair, and you said to yourself, I believe it's going to hold me up. You would not have sat down in that chair unless you believed, and you couldn't know that it was going to hold you until your faith was exercised and it modified your behavior to the point where you actually put your behind in the chair and put your weight, your support, your surrender to it faithfully. What I'm trying to express to you and explain to you is that faith is not this mystical, intangible, ethereal, super spiritual thing. Faith is something that you have, that I have, Faith is something that we all exercise every single day of our lives. Society, what we call civilization, cannot function apart from faith. You, as a human being, can't function apart from faith. And so the question isn't, do I have faith? The question for all of us, whether it's traffic laws being obeyed and driving our cars to Sunday gatherings or sitting in chairs or the big questions of, Why do I exist? Does God exist? Why am I here? What is meaning? What is wrong? What is right? The question is not, do I have faith? The question is, what am I placing my faith in? What am I being supported by? What am I trusting to be my guide and my counsel and my understanding of these big questions? Everyone in this room has some sort of faith way that we are answering those questions. And as Christians, as we're going to discover here in our text, we have placed our faith in a very specific place to guide us and direct us and move us and modify our behavior. Number two, though, a second thing about faith to help us understand what it is in understanding what it's not 
if first of all, it's not just this metaphysical, super spiritual reality, but it's something that we all function in every single day. Number two, faith is both a cerebral, intellectual decision. I am deciding to trust that people will obey the traffic laws. I am deciding cerebrally to trust that this seat will hold me up. I am deciding intellectually. I've studied, I've thought, I've read. I'm using my rationale and my logic, and I'm making a decision that the better way, the the better way to answer the question of the existence of this world and my existence and wrong and right is to believe that there's a God out there that made all of this. That's a cerebral thing. But faith is more than just a cerebral intellectual assent to a truth or a decision about something. Faith is also an internal, subjective, all-transforming reality. Faith is an experience. Again, coming back to our chairs this morning. I could have cerebral intellectual faith about that chair right there that it will hold me up. I could see all the chairs in this room, 200 of them holding up all of you, and I see that you're not falling. Therefore, my faith is bolstered. And cerebrally, I say there's proof that this is true. But until the faith moves from my head to my heart and my hands, until what I believe modifies my behavior, I can stand and I can say, I believe. I could write a creed about the power of the chairs. I could sing about the glorious support of the chairs that they will provide. But until I sit down in the chair, I'm not exercising faith. Faith modifies our behavior. Now, an interesting point for the Christians in this room. Most of our Christian life, we will spend doing what I have come to call believing what we believe. Christianity and maturing as a Christian is growing in believing what we really believe. In other words, Christianity is actually sitting down in the chair. Christianity is deciding about Jesus and trusting him. Christianity is deciding that I'm going to come to the gathering. I'm going to decide my faith is going to allow me to drive down the road without fear of the other man. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus and it's going to modify my behavior and I'm going to move on it. And, And the reason that I know that this is a case for all of us, just by a show of hands, let's be humble in this church and let's confess one unto another. How many of us over the past month, now let's go 12 months just to make sure we get everybody. Over the past 12 months, have you had moments of anxiety, fear, discouragement, or anger? Just raise your hands. You sinning church. Listen, I had an epiphany here a number of years ago, a long time ago actually, I'm reading the words of Jesus, and Jesus is telling people, I'm God, and I'm here to love you, and I'm here to show you who God is, and I want you to put your faith in God, and and Jesus makes these outlandish statements. Look at the birds of the air, man. They've got plenty of food, so why are you so worried about it? Hey, go out and look at the flowers of the field. Why are you so worried about your clothes? God's going to put clothes on you. He's able to do that. Hey, every one of the hairs of your head are numbered. And if a sparrow falls, God knows about it. So how much more important are you to to God than a sparrow? And in this moment of reading these words, reading them literally with a faith engagement of them, I suddenly stepped back from the text and said to myself, if I actually believed this, I would never worry. Which means that I don't actually believe this. I've, I've given intellectual assent to the words of Jesus, but it has yet to, in many times in my life, modify my behavior to the point, modify my motivations to the point, modify my emotions to the point where I actually 
sit down in the support that is Jesus. Okay, sarah, sarah, look at the birds, enjoy the flowers of the field and not worry. But the epiphany of Christianity, the maturing of a young Christian into an older Christian, one who is going to see Christ face to face, is a daily experience of taking this exercise of faith that we're all exercising and moving it from just an intellectual descent deep down into our hearts. And that happens by prayer, that happens by surrender, that happens by circumstances, that happens through a million different ways that God is organizing in our lives to move us and shape us and transform us. I'll close this first point by saying this. We are all exercising faith. Faith is how civilization and society functions. Faith is how we function, and therefore to exercise faith is to be fully human. We need to understand that the more we are operating out of a reliance on ourselves devoid of faith in God, the less human we are. Question number two this morning. Question number two. Why is faith so central? Why is it such a big deal in the Bible? Why over and over and over do we see, trust me, believe in me, guard your faith, bolster your faith, grow in your faith? Why is faith so important to God? I had a phone conversation with one of my mentors this past week, uh, Dr. Gary Bashirs at Western Seminary. I've been pondering this question for a number of weeks. Gary, why is faith so important? His response, well, it's the same reason that my wife's faith in me is important. Faith is covenantal and relational. Faith is the foundation of relationship. I think that Gary's right. The Bible makes faith so important because whether you're looking at Adam and Eve who were in relationship with God, a covenant between God and them, they had to exercise their faith and be faithful to their father to be in relationship with them. And so too, through the rest of the biblical narrative, through the rest of the story, everywhere we see God interacting with his people, it's like a relationship between a husband and a wife. I need you to trust me. I need you to follow me. I need you to rely on me. Why? Because that's when you're the most fully human. You are most fully you when you are completely surrendered to, yielded to, no matter what, trusting in God. You are married to him. You are the bride of Christ. Let's move on. Let's look here at the clarity of faith that we learn from Habakkuk. The clarity of faith. Only when we move our focus outside of ourselves can we get clarity. Now, I, I need us to hear this clearly because we all suffer from this as sinners. Adam and Eve exercised perfect reflective faith in God before the fall, before sin. They, they relied perfectly on their father to provide for them, to protect them, to love them. They were satisfied as he gave to them their significance. He would look at them and say, I adore you, and they experienced that fully, believing that. There was nothing inhibiting that faith covenantal relationship. When Satan came and deceived Eve, and Eve took of the fruit and handed the fruit to her husband, who also forsook his faith in God and put his faith in himself, sin deformed our hearts. So what sin has done to us now is rather than our faith being placed outwardly, it is turned inwardly to self. 
So we now, by default, rely, we place our faith in to answer the big questions. We look into ourselves. We look into our reason. We look into our logic. We put our trust in our feelings, particularly in this culture. If you're 30 or under, your feelings seem to bear absolute truth to you. So if one day you're up, the world is great. The next day you're down, the world is bad. Your feelings dictate all of the world's reality. That's a faith action that we all exercise. And what sin has done is it has turned our faith inward into ourselves. Our cultural mantra, tell me if you disagree with this, is just believe in yourself and you can do anything. That's not true. I know some of us right now are going to be shocked by this, but I want to tell you the truth. Believing in yourself does not mean that you will be able to be whatever you want to be and go wherever you go and do whatever you want to do. It's not true. It's why our culture is so often devastated by the expectations that aren't met, by the falling and crumbling of our dreams because we've bought this cultural lie that's a deception that says, place your faith in you and everything will be great. An extreme example of this, this past week I was listening to Al Mohler and his wonderful podcast, I can't recommend it enough, called The Briefing. He told of students, 65 of them, at Columbia University, Ivy League school in Manhattan, paying thousands and thousands of dollars in the midst of their Masters of Business Administration degree programs, MBAs at Columbia University in Manhattan paying thousands of dollars not to listen to leadership gurus or strategists or economists, but to listen to Deepak Chopra, who instructed the students to turn their gaze inward that they might find themselves. It's testimony to the state of our cultural understanding. MBAs at an Ivy League school in Manhattan are now turning their dollars and attention and focus onto Deepak Chopra, who is saying, all you need to do to be great business administrators, great leaders, the next CEOs, next Fortune 500 company leaders is ponder your navel. Look to yourself and we'll see the way forward. In the common vernacular, this is lunacy. This is insanity. And so faith, biblically, turned away from internal reasonings and logic and, and feelings to something outside of ourselves is where we find clarity. And what we see here in Habakkuk is God makes clear where the Hebrew people are to put their faith. Again, read with me there in verse 2. Habakkuk, this is what I want you to do. Things are looking bleak. Things are really bad. Things are going to get worse. Things in your life are filled with chaos. There seems to be calamity all over the place. There's nothing but problems everywhere you look. It seems like your prayers aren't being answered. It seems like the suffering is only increasing. Habakkuk, place your faith in something outside of yourself and you'll begin to gain clarity. Verse 2, he says to Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you what to do. I want you to write the vision and I want you to make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. He is told to write down what's coming. Write down outside of himself and outside of the Hebrew people, this is what you're to see. This is what you're to believe. 
He says, I want you to write it down and I want you to make it plain. This isn't going to be rocket science. This isn't going to be some sort of metaphysical Eastern guruism that makes no sense. Write it down, make it plain, and make it plain so that whoever reads it can run with it and proclaim it as clearly and plainly to all the culture around you. This is what we have in the Bible. God has written down for us where we are to place our faith. He has made it plain. And even more clearly, God has come to us in the gospel in Jesus. Four men wrote about him, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a historical figure who in time and space came and laid hold of deity. Jesus saying, I am God here with you making it plain to all of humanity. Here's what I want from you. Here's where you're going to get clarity. Here's where in the midst of the bad, here's the good news that's going to lead you to see what you're actually to do. Don't look inwardly to yourselves, but look to a Savior, Jesus would say. Make it plain. And so now we, the church, we live as a a new society of new humanity who says, I was confused. I looked at my feelings as the arbiter of truth. I looked at my own fallen and deformed ideas and desires as the final arbiter of truth. But then somebody gave me a Bible, or somebody took me to this crazy church in the South End called Taproot, or somebody prayed for me at a a gathering, or somebody, somebody talked to me about Jesus, and everything changed. My faith moved from this inward, confused, always hitting roadblocks, chaos, my faith was placed in the Bible, in Jesus Christ, in who he said he was, in what he did. I placed my faith outwardly, and now, though there's still confusion and there's still chaos in the midst of the blackness, in the midst of the bleakness, there's this good news, and I continue to place my faith in Jesus, taking what I believe in my head, letting it go deep down into my heart, and I run with it. I run with it to my workplaces. I run with it to my neighborhoods. I run with it to my family. I run with it to my friends. I run with it in every single way to make plain to all the people of all the lands. Place your faith in Christ. Number three this morning, let's talk about the confidence of faith that we learn from here in Habakkuk. There in verse three, Habakkuk makes the vision plain And the vision is for something in the future that the Hebrews are to place their faith in to stabilize them, to comfort them, to calm their hearts in the midst of all the darkness and the chaos. So verse 3, Habakkuk is to encourage the people that still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The confidence we have when we turn our faith outwardly to Jesus, when we place our faith in the Bible, that faith then then becomes a present, calming, comforting reality for us as we await what is going to be in the end. Does that make sense? So we have a sure future that is in store for us. We have a sovereign God who is establishing and organizing and, and doing what needs to be done in the world to make all the wrongs right, to make everything just, to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to eventually completely and totally deliver us. 
And so the confidence of our faith is now this, this calming and comforting present reality that in the end, things are going to be okay. When we place our faith in anything but Jesus, outside of ourselves, when we look at the suffering in the, we, in the world, when we look at the pain of our own lives with, with no reliance on Jesus, we become like little tiny to, to, toy boats, little paper boats in the midst of a Pacific storm hurricane of suffering and problems and confusion. There's no confidence there. One of the gospel writers, Matthew, tells the story about one of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, a crazy guy named Peter. I can't wait to meet him. Jesus had said, I want you to cross the Lake of Galilee. So his disciples are rowing across the lake, and a storm comes up, and I've been in Israel before, and these storms come out of the middle of nowhere. The morning we left the Galilee region, a storm came up, and it's like the lake goes from this placid, beautiful, serene scene to this crazy, chaotic, just waves crashing all over the place. It's really intense. And so envision this storm on this lake. These men are rowing across the lake as Jesus, their master, has told them to. And, and in the fourth watch of the night, this is early in the morning, they're ready to give up. Matthew tells us that Jesus comes walking on top of the water towards his disciples. And they're afraid. And so Peter exercises faith. And he exercises it not only cerebrally, I'm choosing to believe that this is Jesus, but I'm going to test my faith. I'm going to put my support in Jesus in the midst of this chaos. If it's really you, Jesus, tell me to come to you. Most of us know this story. It's a very famous story. Peter gets out of the boat, and he doesn't sink. His eyes are outward on Jesus, looking to Jesus. In the midst of this storm of chaos and confusion, Peter does the impossible. He starts walking on the water towards Jesus. And there's a moment where Peter's faith lapses. And in actuality, I don't know if it's really a lapse of faith for him. I think he just misdirects it for a moment. He looks in at himself and realizes, I can't walk on water, and I'm on the water. He looks at the storms. I can't control this storm, and there's waves all over the place. His eyes are no longer focused outwardly on Jesus. His cerebral faith really takes over his heart faith, and, and none of this makes logical sense. This is impossible. And he sinks. And there in the lapsing of his faith, or in the misdirection of his faith, is Jesus to grab him by the hand and pull, pull him out. What Jesus is doing right now is you feel like you're being tossed about like a little paper boat. In the storms of this Pacific Ocean of suffering and confusion and chaos, is he's saying, look, I've made the vision plain for you. I came to you. I died for you. So you got to take the eyes off of the boat. you got to take your eyes even off of the storm that's all around you. And you've got to so center and direct your faith, your reliance upon me, that all you see is me. And that's when your cerebral faith moves down into your heart. And the storms, they don't calm. But somehow your soul and your mind and your emotions tend to rise up above it and walk with your eyes on Jesus on top of it. Faith is a crazy, ridiculous thing that makes no sense. It goes beyond just our personal problems, though. 
Because Habakkuk is told in the vision that this vision encapsulates all of history and all of humanity that has ever existed. Habakkuk, in the midst of this bleak, bad news that the Babylonians are coming and you're going to be disciplined, I want you to see this plain vision. I'm making it clear for you, and I want you to place your faith in the end of all things, Habakkuk. Tell the Hebrews to look to the end. Because in the end, as we're going to see next week, all wickedness will be judged. Everything that you're confused about right now, whether it's your personal problems, whether it's the presidential race, whether it's the cataclysmic evil that we are facing in the world currently, the suffering, the plight of the globe. Habakkuk, you've got to take your people and have them see this future end. I've committed to reading uh, St. Augustine's The City of God through 2016. Most philosophers consider it the foundation of Western thought. Uh, it's, it's no Harry Potter. It's no recreational read. <laughs> St. Augustine, his premise is essentially this. He argues that there's two cities. There's the city of the earth or the city of fallen humanity, and their faith is placed in themselves and in false gods. And then there's the city of God, and their faith is placed in the Savior. And it creates this new society in that God is actually using all things, and he's ordered all things under his sovereignty to bring about this end goal. What Habakkuk says is the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And Thomas Merton, in his introduction and helpful little commentary on this book, has this quote that I wanted to read for all of you. This is what a calming, present faith does in a future end. Listen to this crazy quote from Thomas Merton. He says about the city of God, The whole of history since the ascension of Jesus into heaven is concerned with one work only, the building and perfecting of this city of God. Even the wars, persecutions, and all the other terrible evils which have made the history of empires terrible to read and more terrible to live through have had only this one purpose. They have been the flails with which God has separated the wheat from the chaff, the elect from the damned. They have been the tools that have fashioned the living stones which God will set in the walls of his city of vision. What Merton is saying is, when we look through the history of the wars of humanity, when we watch the news, when we see ISIS has made another attack, and the Zika virus is coming to the West, the presidential race in the United States is some sort of circus show. What Merton is saying and what Augustine is saying and what the Bible is saying and what Habakkuk was saying to these people and what Jesus says to us this morning is that though it's chaos, all of history is actually ordered around this one event of the cross, which then orders itself around the final event of the consummation of creation where all of this craziness will be made right. And when you, you cerebrally say, I'm going to believe that, and then you look at the world through that lens it can calm you and comfort you in the midst of all of your personal hurts and all the problems of the world. You can look at the insanity of this place and you can say, by faith, I'm going to sit down in, in my heart and in my emotions and in my experience, I'm going to rest in the fact that my kids are going to be okay if Jesus doesn't return. Whatever United States they inherit, they're going to be okay as Christians because these wrongs will be made right. You can say, if you think like I think, that my grandsons and my great-grandsons 
they will inherit this new society of new humanity, this new city of God. And this new city of God will stand fast no matter what waves crash against it. As we, this new society of new humanity, continually place our faith cerebrally and emotionally and internally upon a God who has died for us and resurrected on our behalf. We close with this this morning, the crux of faith. What is the crux of our faith? And we have it there in verse 4. Habakkuk is to go and tell the people, this is in context about Babylon, behold, his refers to the Babylonian kings and nations. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The crux of our faith begins with believing that we are the problem. (laughs) I know that is not a popular message at all. But that's where it begins. The crux of our faith is beginning to actually believe that the more I look internally at all of my deformed desires and fallen feelings and and broken logic and rationale, and the more I trust my myopic little 80 years of life in comparison to the eternity of God to describe how the universe should be run, the more I create more problems for myself and for others. The crux of our faith, the crux of the gospel begins with our sin. The crux of our salvation begins with understanding that we need to be saved, that we must turn from ourselves, that we must surrender to the truth, that we have been the ones that have done the wrong. I've used this quote before. Chesterton was asked by a newspaper, what's the problem with the world today? And his response was, dear sir, I am. This doesn't mean that we're some sort of self-pitiful, self-flagellating people. Woe is me. Guess I'll go eat worms. I'm just so bad. There's actually a deep surrender and a deep liberation that comes from recognizing, oh, wow, I am bad. That's why everything's been so messed up. (laughs) It's almost clarifying to come to that point of realizing, oh, yeah, things didn't go well because I was looking in at my little 80 years of life and telling eternal God how to order the universe. And yeah, no wonder. Oh, yeah, it didn't go well because I tend to lie, justify, because I tend to be selfish, I tend to be pride-filled, I tend to uh, thieve, I tend to embezzle, I tend to uh, lust, I tend to murder. Hmm. Wow, I believe that. What do I do about that? And the crux of our faith is that we do nothing about it. The crux of our faith is there in verse 4. The righteous shall believe. The crux of our salvation is not coming to believe that we're bad and then saying, okay, I'm going to get it right. The crux of our faith is not coming to believe that we've messed it up and now we're going to fix it so that God will favor us and accept us. The crux of our faith has at its beginning that we are bad, that we have messed it up, and we can do nothing about it, but we must believe that God has done what is necessary. God has done and given to us righteousness. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of this this morning because I don't hardly understand them myself. The Hebrew scholars in this room could probably explain it to you way better than me. There's a whole lot of technical Hebrew going on here in this little tiny verse, and there's a whole lot of scholarly debate about exactly what's being said. So if you take 15 different commentaries on this one little verse and you try to distill it all down, what Habakkuk is told to tell the people and what the church must always remember, what's being said here is, those who will live, those who will thrive, not only survive, but live and, and thrive and flourish. Those who are right 
those who are righteous, those who are justified, are made so by their belief, that is, by their faith, cerebrally and internally, saying, I'm going to sit down in Jesus and I'm going to place my full weight upon him, but not only in a moment of time, through a moment of times. This could be translated, the righteous shall live by their steadfast faithfulness. And it's not that Habakkuk is to tell the people, now you just get out there and be faithful to do good. Habakkuk is telling the people, no matter how bad it gets, and hear this, the good news of the gospel, no matter how bad you get, steadfastly, faithfully believe that God is good and that Jesus is enough, that he has satisfied righteousness for you. Steadfastly, moment by moment, cerebrally, let it drop down into your heart that no matter how or what you've done, no matter what you're doing today, no matter what may be done in the future, no matter what comes against you, no matter how you come against somebody else, no matter what circumstances unfold, no matter which president for the next 20 terms takes over the United States, no matter how powerful ISIS gets, no matter whether Zika or any other plague comes across our circle of influence, moment by moment, steadfastly, faithfully be faith-filled and settle your soul into that. That is who will live. That is what makes you righteous. And every day of our lives as a new society of new humanity, God engineers our circumstances as his body to believe what we believe. The ultimate fulfillment of this vision was Jesus. Jesus coming and doing for us what we couldn't do. And so when we're bad, we now place the full weight of our life in that Jesus was good. When we don't pray, Jesus prayed perfectly for us. When we don't worship, Jesus worshiped perfectly for us. When we don't read our Bibles, Jesus read his Bible perfectly for us. I'm just trying to hit all the Christians in the room. Now for all you sinners, when we're, when we're drunk, passed out on the floor, Jesus drank wine but without sin. When we, when, we, when we snip just a few extra bucks this way or embezzle a little bit on the books this way or we, or we take a position of high and lofty over another, whether it's in actuality or just in our hearts, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus washed the feet of the people. Jesus lived content. Jesus prayed perfectly. And all that guilt and that shame that we feel, we must constantly, moment by moment, Sunday by Sunday, as we do here at Taproot, come back to the communion table where we not only cerebrally say, Jesus took my punishment so I am forgiven and I am clean and white. But emotionally, we've got to take that down in. That's where we find the healing. And it is a moment-by-moment surrender. That's what Habakkuk is saying to us. And then finally, because of Jesus, we really do, with everything we've got, hold on to the end. Do you believe this? That one day, this amazing place that we live is actually going to be more amazing. Do we actually believe that every wrong that has ever been done to us will be made right, and every wrong that we've ever done will be made right, that the child will play by the den of a viper and not be bitten, that the lion will lay down with the lamb? See, it puts a goofy smile on your face. And, and if it doesn't, it's because you don't believe yet. And so like a good religious person, I'll just believe better. No, no, you won't. You've got to just surrender and say, 
I believe. Help my unbelief. It's, it's this ever-deepening, take this cerebral thing and get it down deep into my heart and my soul. We're going to take communion, and I'd have the band come on up. I think our Bible meditation for the morning might be appropriate today to, to, to go into our time of communion today thinking about Peter <clears throat> and asking Jesus to, to set us up on the water. Asking Jesus to, to settle our souls.